laughing out loud, but still tearlessly, because I was somebody who never, ever, whatever the circumstances, cried. Don't let me die. Please. Don't let me die. Even in the midst of all that anguish, I had not given up on myself. I wanted to live, wanted to get back to the set of my beloved Coronation Street. Wanted to feel Bet Lynch's wind beneath my wings and fly, fly off to that glorious golden oasis where I always left Julie Goodyear and all her troubles behind. So, what have you done now? You must have done summer wrong, were two of Alice, my mum's most familiar expressions, where I was concerned. They were never said, though, in exasperation, more in resignation that something dreadful had happened or was about to happen again in my life, and such events, which somehow I never seemed to see coming, were frequent. The straw that broke this camel's back, however, came comparatively late in the saga that is my life. In 1973, when I was 31 years old, and followed a second marriage that didn't even survive the wedding day. Nervous breakdowns, both complete and incomplete, I suspect, are frequently born of more than one event. They're more commonly the result of a step-by-step process that chips off little bits of your heart and slowly undermines your sanity until there's a brainstorm. I was lucky. I found myself in the hands of good, caring doctors and nurses and a brilliant psychiatrist, and this good fortune saved me. I wasn't always so lucky with medical teams. When, at just 18 years old, I was giving birth, I found myself at the mercy of a ferocious sister and nursing staff who were terrified of her. The labour lasted for 48 hours, and even though I was married, I was subjected to total disapproval from that sister throughout. For two days, I lay in that ward like a frightened, bewildered animal. The only thing I knew to ask for, because my mum had told me, was gas and air to help ease the agony of the contractions. But when I cried out for it, the sister just laughed and wheeled it away. Unbelievable. But that kind of behaviour, I've learned, was common in those days. There was no pity for girls who were caught out. Not a bit. And I know she got pleasure from inflicting pain on vulnerable people. Get on with it, was the sister's attitude throughout the rest of the birth. When I was writhing in pain from a particularly harsh contraction, I remember her leaning over me and laughing in my face. Now, was it worth it? Was it? When at last my baby was born on the 28th of April 1960, it wasn't handed to me. There was no precious moment allowed when I could gaze down at its features and count its fingers and toes. Hastily bundled into some flannelette thingy, it was placed in a far corner of the delivery room and I lay there watching the hands of a clock on the wall. Was the baby alive? Was the baby dead? I didn't know. Couldn't tell. My legs were still in stirrups, which I thought was normal practice then. But now I know wasn't, and I could feel blood trickling from me. 
Not until I'd been lying in that delivery room for many hours did I receive my first words of kindness. A youngish, lean-faced doctor came in, took one look at me, and immediately sized the situation up. How long has this girl been lying here like this? He called over his shoulder, and I could tell he was really angry. Having gone out of the room, he then came back with a nurse who I hadn't seen before. He instructed her to wash me and get my legs down. Throughout this, he talked to me kindly. Then he began to explain that because I was so badly torn, I would unfortunately have to be hurt again while he stitched me up. Once all that had been done, he asked the nurse to bring the baby to me, and at last I was able to hold my £9.10 son in my arms. It was the first time.